So Tyler, I know you don't oftentimes listen to other podcasts, but you do you have any that you've been listening to now? Like, are you finally listening to other podcasts? Well, I wouldn't say I don't listen. I don't listen to podcasts, let's be real. Um, not what I'm listening to now, but what I binged a couple months ago, it's Extremities. If y'all have ever on YouTube watched any videos by Wendover Productions, he also has a podcast called Extremities. It's one of those like interesting fact channels. That sounds um, right up your alley. It, I mean, 100%. And in the podcast, it's different seasons, and he goes over different, like, places in the world, like, different extreme places in the world, hence extremities. Oh. But not extreme in the way you think of, like, it's on a volcano. But I know the first season is over uh, Pitcairn Island, which is this, like, tiny British island in the middle of the southern Pacific Ocean, like... A thousand miles away from South America, a couple hundred people live there, and just d- diving into like its history, its culture, its everything. He oh. did season two was like Svalbard, which are the islands north of Norway, and then uh, season three I think was Saint Helena, and so it's all of these different places. Sometimes he goes to them, and it's so interesting. And each season's like six or seven. 30 40 minute episodes oh perfect oh my god i loved it you know i actually have been listening to a podcast that's also not true crime which i think that's funny we're you know hosts of a true crime podcast yet believe it or not we listen to other things too (laughs) so the one that i just started listening to is called psych wine and pop culture and it's a mental health podcast and they also talk about psychology how it relates to things in pop culture they also talk about wine so like obviously totally up my alley and it's these two best friends dr heather and Kristen, and they just talk to each other about literally everything there's an episode about therapy and how it's not scary actually talking about how you really want to have a relationship with your therapist and that sometimes it takes a while to find one you truly vibe with. And that's okay because like I've had therapists in the past where there was just like literally no connection. And I was like, this is, I'm not feeling it. And so I stopped going Mm -hmm. because we just, we didn't connect and that's okay. And they also talk about Alzheimer's, dementia, suicide prevention and signs of suicide It's really a very comfortable way to just listen to two best friends. One of them is a psychologist, and they talk about the things that sometimes we don't talk about. And it's a really great way to destigmatize mental health and illness. And I highly recommend it. It's just one that, especially now in 2020, we've talked so many times about how difficult this year is. And how we're all being faced with so many different challenges that we never thought we would have to. And even if that is just, oh my gosh, I've been home for eight months. You know, that changes a lot. It makes things like, for example, I don't talk to as many people as I used to. I talk to the same people. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I find myself this person who used to I don't really talk to people in public. Not that I, I I just didn't really see a reason. Like if I'm at Target or whatever, like, like I'm not just going to chat it up with someone randomly, except now I do. 
Like, if I happen to share an elevator with a person, I'm that person that keeps talking. It's so bizarre. Just the way my behaviors have changed because I have more time, like, alone. And then also how, I mean, yeah, there's definitely been some depressing moments because I'm at home alone. Yeah, I love that idea of a podcast. I mean, we've both on this been, I think, very open about you know, our mental health and mental illness issues, you know, I've talked a few times about, you know, I, I suffer from depression and anxiety, I have PTSD. And there really is, unfortunately, a lot of times there feels that stigma around talking about it, even things like talking about therapy. And I think there's been a change. Me too. Um, And which I love. I mean, i I feel like, oh, what's the, what's the meme? I've seen a meme that's like, boomers, did you hear she's going to, looks around, therapy. And then it's like, Gen Zers, yo, bitch, let me tell you what my therapist just said. And I'm like, that is important and huge. I think a lot of times we're talking to people like our age and stuff, there's more of a comfort level in talking about it, which is huge. So, nice. I personally think everyone should go to therapy because who oh, does yeah. who does not need a third party outside person that you can literally say anything and everything to? Because yes, we all have our best friends and sometimes family that we can talk to and tell everything. But there it's it's generally not like one person like there are always like okay if if this is what i want to talk about i'll talk to this person but if i'm going to talk about this i'm going to talk to this person but no matter what no matter how much we trust and love people there is still that level of it's great to tell someone totally anonymous all of these things because sometimes it gives you the ability to say things out loud that you may have never even said out loud that you've only said in your head And you're saying to a completely non-judgmental party who is just there to listen and help you work through things. It's just, honestly, everyone needs to go to therapy. It's wonderful. I I still need Mm -hmm. to, speaking of, I still need to find um, a great therapist here in the Dallas area. So I totally need to do that. That should be on my to-do list. Boom. Yes. Well, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm... (laughs) I was about to say this is Brittany and this is Blood. I fucked it up. Let me try okay. again. Let me try again. <laughs> I was just like, uh, you good? Just <laughs> thinking about therapy. <laughs> well, hello everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And let's just normalize mental health and talking about it. Yes. Absolutely. In the same way that you would talk about, oh, yeah, when I was seven, like I broke my leg. Yeah, we should be comfortable talking about and being open with our mental health. 100%. But before we get into this week's episode, which um, little little special for y'all, it is officially October. It is officially spooky season. So we're starting our season of spookiness i guess with this episode we have more coming uh but before we get into it uh let's have a quick uh chat with 
our special guest. <laughs> what? I'm like, our Patreoners on the call. <laughs> no, let's have a quick chat about Patreon. So everyone, sit down, gather around, gather around the fire. I'm the camp counselor with the guitar who's really bad at it. Uh, no. Are you going to tell a ghost story? Once upon a time not long ago, I was a hoe. And I'm admitting it. No. Anyways, Patreon. Uh, if y'all have not checked out our Patreon, definitely head over to do it. We, um, last week had our Patreon listeners live Q&A, drink with blood and wine. So fun. And it was so fun, y'all, to sit there and just have the opportunity to just really chat, get to know y'all on a deeper level and share our wine. And I don't know, it literally felt like, I don't know, and you go to book clubs, so maybe it it's you can provide more similarities, but it kind of felt like that, you know, we're all coming together in a room, drinking our wine, chatting about life. I loved it. I loved getting to know y'all more. So definitely expect uh, more of those to come in the future. Definitely. It was so much fun. And even though we didn't all know each other. We had a common theme, this interest in true crime and wine. And we just bounced back and forth talking about that. We talked about family, just, you know, conversation just flowed and we love talking to you guys. So like Tyler said, we're doing that again for sure. Definitely. I also want to take a moment to thank some of our newest Patreon family members, Katie Barnett and Lisa Huffings. Thank you all so, so much for joining the family, for uh, being a part of the Blood and Wine family. We are so excited to have y'all. So hope y'all are enjoying the murder minis. Hope y'all are just having a great time being a part, being part of the family. Yes. And you guys, while you're at it, if you've already checked out Patreon or if you're going to, also make sure you've subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast listening platform you're using. Whatever you're listening to us on right now, make sure you subscribe so you get notified of all our new episodes on Tuesdays. Well, Tyler, I think it's time to begin this first episode of October. What's our first spooky theme? So, like I kind of mentioned earlier, we're we're doing spooky season for October, you know, getting ready for Halloween at the end of the month. And I feel like everything in October, the second it switches over from September, everything is now orange and black. There's bats everywhere. I mean, I live in Austin, so there's always bats. <laughs> but, like, now there are fake bats everywhere. And I thought you said just... bats. <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> everyone bathes in October. Yeah, showers canceled for October. Everyone bathes <laughs> in their cauldron. Don't do that. Don't bathe in a cauldron. If you have a big ass cauldron, though, like send us a picture. I've never seen one in real life. But speaking of cauldrons, witches and witchcraft—that's our topic. That's our. That's what we're starting off spooky season with, because you know there's a there's a big history of murder and stuff, uh, murdering supposed witches crazy ritualistic murders and stuff. So I was like, what, what better way to start off the spooky season than something that is just inherently spooky? Yeah. Well, and also, who doesn't love Hocus Pocus? And that movie is about witches. And they're <laughs> eating children. Bette Midler is everything. Yeah. I love that movie so much. Oh, 100%. 
I think the the guy in it, the main guy, he might have been like part of one of my first sexual awakenings. Not at Robin in Batman and Robin levels at all, because whew, plastic bat nipples. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I take it you're totally talking about Billy, you know the, yeah. the dead guy in Hocus Pocus. Yeah, yeah, uh huh, a hundred percent. No, I'm talking about Max. This is I don't know the the main guy, not not oh. Billy. <laughs> yeah, no, I knew you were. I love that movie. I still want a cat named Binks. I should do that, but Willow doesn't want a sibling. I I don't need another one. <laughs> well, before we get into our witches and witchcraft, let's get into our wine. Yes, Brittany, what wine are you drinking today? So I think I picked probably one of the most perfect wines for this episode. Although I will say there's a lot of wines with like names and labels that are pretty spooky and creepy. And that's what I'm going to try to do this whole month. But as my very first one, I picked the Witching Hour Cabernet Sauvignon from California. Okay. So obviously, witches, witching hour, and in our price range. It was only 10 bucks at Total Wine. This wine is an elegant, medium-bodied cab with flavors of deep cherry and succulent berries. So very much fruit forward, which it's a California cab, so that is to be expected. The tannins are really smooth and structured, and they're present from the first sip all the way to the finish. So you just taste these very smooth, um, structured tannins. I like the label. There's so... Witching Hour has this Cabernet Sauvignon. The one that I've seen before is their red blend, and they also have a sweet red blend. And I don't know if this is new for this year. When I was looking it up, I kept finding something with a completely different label, and I couldn't tell if it was the same wine or just another wine that happened to have the same name because it's a cab from California. And let's be real, there's a lot of those out there. Yeah. But this one, it's just... You know, on the back, it, you know, has all this, like, wicked devil does his deeds and black magic bespokes your reason. It's powerful dark arts are conjured into this Cabernet Sauvignon. So I might become possessed after drinking this. We'll see. I mean, you can make that the reason if you wind up having to throw up later. Okay. Like, oh, and just possessed. It's hashtag exorcism. It was the devil in the bottle. <laughs> wow, that sounds like something that people have probably said. That's horrible. All right. Well, without further ado, I'm getting into this bottle. Do it. I'm letting the devil out. All right. So not a real cork. Didn't make a real cork sound. But because of our, like, I don't know, witchy, spooky hour, you know what would be really cool if I had a black wine glass, but I don't. Um, This is one of my, like, vintage crystal ones, and it just felt like... I don't know, like like I'm pouring witch's potion. Okay, yeah. Your little goblet. Also, it's the tiniest wine glass known to man. Look at all it like Oh. It's so small, so I'm probably gonna have like eight glasses of wine. But I mean just hey. like, the one bottle. But while mine breathes, Tyler, what wine did you pick for today's episode? So mine is scary in a different way. Uh, than yours. Mine is scary because it was a $4 bottle. That's terrifying. I know. But again, the 
uh, I guess two episodes ago, the wine I had was like the $3 bottle, $3.33, and it was not bad. So I have cautiously high hopes. This is the Matthew Fox Cabernet Sauvignon from California. And this one I got at the local HEB grocery store. Apparently, it is pretty widespread, so I think most people in the States are going to be able to find it. Oh. Um, so if I like it, get it as well. Um, I looked at a couple reviews. One said that it has a very nice raspberry aroma, light mouthfeel, and smooth, slightly spicy at the back of the throat. It then finishes oaky with a fairly long linger. Another person said, I've had a 42-bone bottle of red that tastes identical to this 4.2-bone bottle of Fox. And it took me longer than it should have to be like, the fuck do you mean? Oh, dollars. Bone. Oh, you're meaning dollars. What? Yeah, I guess, yeah, like that costs 42 bones. Yeah, I picked up on that, but I don't what? Why bone? Why are you calling a dollar a bone? I have no idea, but, uh, so we had a $42 bottle that tasted just like this $4 bottle, um, and said, I don't know if that says more about me or about this wine. You be the judge. I'm like, been there, (laughs) been there. So pretty much a lot of people called out the fruity notes that it had, like raspberry and plum, and that it was a fairly medium bodied, um, or kind of light for a cab, but some reviews mentioned that it was way too sweet and one person even said that they relegated it to cooking wine for their bolognese so i'm like okay might be shit all right it might be shit i do have um a backup boda box so just in case i don't think i'll need it though what does the bottle look like like is this one i may have seen before probably yep i've totally it looks like a bottle that's on the bottom shelf it does, which is why I've seen it. I always look at the bottom shelf. Yeah, I mean, I feel like when a wine label looks like a business card, like that's the layout and design on it, it's like, oh yeah, that's a cheaper one. But hey, if it's solid and it's four bucks, great. I mean, how often Again, do we drink two buck chuck? Like, let's be real. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like, one of my go-to reds is $3, so. It makes cheap bottles not as scary. Yeah. Boom. Beautiful. That cork slid out surprisingly easy. It's a fake one, though, so the sides are all smooth. Always just makes me nervous when anything about the cork is different, because I have had one wine that vinegared, still corked, and I'm I'm scarred. Never forget it. Scarred, not scared with a southern accent. I'm scarred. <laughs> but also. Yes. Hey, don't cheers yet. I <laughs> <laughs> smell like vinegar. She uh she, no, she, no, it doesn't smell like vinegar, but it's it smells strong. Whew. That's the artificial flavor. I don't flavoring. know what the hell rat. I guess. I don't know what the <laughs> hell raspberry scent they're talking about. Maybe it just needs to open a little more, but I mean probably you just poured it. Yeah, I'm honestly I'm I'm getting wine smell. Like I'm not able to get any particulars out of it. It just smells like a red. Mine smells like berries. I also am having some pretty bad allergies right now. So I don't know if what I'm smelling is like the berry must be really strong because I can smell it really strong. 
Well, okay. I think without further ado, let's cheers. Okay, cheers. Cheers. I'm going to tell you about mine while you think about how you feel about yours. Okay. This one's definitely a fruit-forward cab. It's a little bit sweeter than I'm used to. I'm not really getting many oaky notes. I really, really get that dark cherry right at the beginning. It's like kind of a sweeter dark cherry. Very reminiscent of many cabs that I've had in this price range. It's a Mm -hmm. California cab. It's newer. I bet this is probably... It doesn't have a year on the bottle, actually, which... Oh, mine doesn't either. That, that to me, I'm like, are y'all mixing years like champagne or what? You just don't want to tell us. I don't know. This one, I would guess, is probably like a 2018, maybe a 2019. You can tell it didn't age long, if if at all. Like me. It's a good wine. It's a solid cab for 10 bucks. I, yeah. Okay. One of the reviews I read, someone was like, this is one of the best bottles I've ever bought in this price range. And... It's a little bit fruitier. It doesn't have the, uh, like, like, you know how sometimes when you're drinking, like, a less expensive cab and you taste, like, sawdust? Okay. It doesn't have that. It's just, it's definitely, like, fruit forward, berries for sure. I'd be afraid of how sweet that sweet red blend is. Oh, yeah. So, I want to hear about the $4 bottle. That's totally fine. I don't really get what people are saying when they're saying it's, like, really sweet. It's not um, super, super mouth-dryingly dry, but I would I would in no way call this sweet. It's not even as fruit-forward as a lot of cabs I've had. Really? I definitely do get that, like, raspberry jam kind of flavor. And then, yeah, a little bit of... A little bit of oak, and probably I could see where they're getting vanilla from. It's totally fine. For $4, I would absolutely buy this. But one thing I will say, and this is not like a read, I can totally see how this would be a great cooking wine for like a tomato-based sauce and stuff. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And it's, I mean, I don't think you should cook with wine you would never drink because then it's like, okay, well, why are you putting those flavors in? Your food, Obviously, you yeah. don't want to cook with your expensive, fancy bottles. But I think if you're going to be putting it in your food, you should be totally fine having a glass of it. Also, let's be real. When you're cooking with wine, it's going to ask for like a cup. And what are you going to do with the rest of that bottle? You're going to drink it. So come on, be resourceful. Um, yeah, it's a totally solid $4 bottle. I would absolutely drink this. It does not have to be relegated to sangria status at all. That's good. Well, we both got some good wines then. Yeah. All right. Well, now we have our wines. We have our extra spooky topic. Brittany, what is your uh, witch and witchcraft murder case? I'm taking it back to the very beginning. Well, actually, it is witches, so not really the very beginning, but I'm taking it to like a really, really long time ago. I'm going to be talking about the Salem Witch Trials. Okay, um, my full-on knowledge of the Salem Witch Trials is 98% based on senior year of high school, I had to read The Crucible by Arthur Miller? Yes. Um, and I mean, you know, it goes into it, and I know, like, Tichuba was a real person. That's about it. There's a lot that I didn't know either about the real Salem Witch Trials stories, because- 
I mean, I've heard of it. It's obviously used in TV. And growing up, one of my favorite R.L. Stein books, I can't even remember what it was called, but it was about this woman who was being convicted of being a witch in Salem. And mm. it just, it's always been very mysterious to me. And just like, I don't know, it's such a different time. And when I start going through like this actual trial and like the ridiculousness of it, it also makes me think of like the Scarlet Letter, just these things that are beyond yeah. absurd that, I mean, obviously we can't look at this through a 2020 lens because it doesn't make sense. Although it does not make sense. And that's really scary. I mean, the, the whole groupthink aspect is a powerful thing. All right, so the sources I used, an article on History.com by the History.com editors, an article in Smithsonian Magazine by Jess Bloomberg, and an article on Famous Trials, which is a website created by Professor Douglas Olinder at the University of Missouri, Kansas City in their School of Law. So the very infamous Salem Witch Trials began in the spring of 1692. I was about to say 1962 because <laughs> I'm not used to saying years like 1692. Yeah, but then it's crazy to think about like 1692, I mean, 330 years ago, but it just feels like it's so much further back than that. But then again, I guess if you're saying, okay, well, take that stance, 330 years for 1692 was the 1360s, and that time just feels made up, so I guess 300 years is a long time. It's a long time. So it all started when a group of young girls in Salem Village, Massachusetts, claimed to be possessed by the devil and accused several local women of witchcraft. As this wave of fear and hysteria spread throughout colonial Massachusetts, a special court convened in Salem to hear these cases. And the first woman convicted of being a a, a witch. Of being a bitch. Of being a witch bitch. A rich witch bitch. American Horror Story Coven. Witch bitch. And the first woman to be convicted of being a witch was Bridget Bishop. And she was hanged in June. 18 other witches were to be followed, and they were also hung in the Salem's Gallows Hill, while about 150 other men, women, and children were accused over the next several months. So what really started? How did this begin? I mean, what, was she reading a book and they're like, a woman reading? That's a witch. (laughs) Belief in the supernatural and specifically in the devil and his practice of giving certain humans, which were witches, his powers to harm others in return for their loyalty. So basically that whole, like, selling your soul to the devil, those were witches. And he get my soul on discount, baby. (laughs) So this whole idea of, like, selling your soul to the devil and being a witch and doing his bidding It started in Europe as early as the 14th century, and it was widespread in colonial New England. But if you look back at this time, you know, the 1690s, there's a lot of really harsh realities in life going on in Salem Village, such as a recent smallpox epidemic, fears of attacks from Native Americans, and a rivalry with the neighboring town of Salem Town. So we've got Salem Village and Salem Town. Whenever it's like, 
the town rivalry, it makes me, I mean, we're from the South, so obviously, but I'm always like, oh, yeah, the football game. <laughs> and no, it's actually witch murders. Um, Not football. A little different than, you know, rivalries we know. But I also like to think that at this time, I'd be sitting there in my little bonnet and my gusset and be like, y'all fucking dumb. Also, I'm a man in a then they'd probably be like you're a witch and i'd be like probably literally not if i was you would already be dead like duh (laughs) like use your logic and they'd be like um i saw goody tyler dancing with the devil and i'll be like what wop was on devil's a good dancer a lot of this really tense period was also fueled by fear people were really suspicious of outsiders this again is something that yeah That's still pretty true in a lot of places. Racism and xenophobia. Yeah. So in January 1962, nine-year-old Elizabeth... Not 1962. Probably not then. (laughs) (laughs) I'm jumping really far into the future by 300 years. No. In January of 1692, nine-year-old Elizabeth Paris, known as Betty, and 11-year-old Abigail Williams who were the daughter and niece of Samuel Paris, who was the minister of Salem Village. Um, So Betty was his daughter. Abigail was his niece. They started having fits and very violent contortions and uncontrollable outbursts of screaming. Betty would dash about, dive under furniture. She would contort in pain, bark like a dog. She suddenly fell dumb babbled nonsensically, and she complained of having a fever. And then there was one moment that probably shocked her father most of all. You know, not only is she, like, contorting and barking, but she also picked up a Bible and threw it across the room. I mean, of everything else you described, I'm, like, throwing something. I get that, like, it's the Bible and it's also this time period. And he's the minister. everything... Oh, yeah, that too. (laughs) But I'm like, of everything else, I'm like, that's the most normal is throwing a book. But um, also, what is it with olden times? All the men are like Jebediah or all these like old ass names. And then the women are like their friends, Abby, Sarah and Denise. What? Almost all of those names I will be saying in the next 30 minutes. uh, Yeah, because you're saying that I was like, so... Bridget and Sarah, they're walking through Salem Township. They're like, hi, Jebediah. Oberon Brian. Like, what? <laughs> well, yeah, because, like, her dad's name is Samuel. I mean, is it is it just that, like, what we, the popular women's names are just, like, biblical ones? Because isn't there, like, uh, Rachel yeah, in the Bible? and Sarah, and st- like, Elizabeth, like, all of them. Why, why aren't guys still named, like, Ezekiel and... I mean, I'm sure they are. They are. It's just not as common. His name's Ezekiel Elliott. He's the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. Okay. Well, I don't know sports. You know this about me. But I'm just saying it feels weird. Well, because there's this phenomenon I read about a long time ago that just talked about specifically how, like, fantasy authors trying to use actual names from the past... There's like a weird disconnect that some names that are legitimately old ass, like from the 12th century, sound too modern. Like Tiffany sounds full ass modern. No, I mean, it's a name that's like a thousand years old and shit, but they 
fantasy authors can't use it because it sounds too like and then tiffany walked in (laughs) she's singing about the mall and it it's just so crazy apparently i just looked at a reddit list apparently chad is a name that was used in like ancient greece or rome or something and i'm like (laughs) chad and (laughs) tiffany which literally thousand year old couple but also the couple (laughs) that is they're like freshmen in college and they're at the mall because for some reason they can't let go of the high school aspect of going to the mall oh see i think chad and tiffany are your next door neighbors who bought a house and they're both like 22 and you're like fuck you guys how the hell did y'all buy a house together but they're really sweet they but they play like card games together. They're that they're twenty two, but you're like, are you sixty? But you go over to drink wine and play like Uno or whatever. I want to be friends with Chad and Tiffany. I want to be anyway. I want to be friends with Chad and <laughs> Tiffany from ancient Rome. Oh uh, yeah, I bet they're more fun. They probably only drink wine. True. And wear togas. Uh, I think I think togas were Greek, but yeah. Okay, but we're not talking about Chad and Tiffany. We are talking about Betty and Abigail. Betty and Abby. So Abigail, she was the niece of the minister. She tried to launch herself in the air. So just she's also acting odd. 11-year-old Anne Putnam and two 17-year-olds, Mercy Lewis and Mary Walcott, they began to both exhibit highly unusual behavior as well. Four, then five, then six girls started acting really bizarre. And so the whole village, they were scared. They were like, this is the devil. This is the devil at work. If you were like a horse girl growing up in the 1690s, they would think you're a witch. You know, when you're a kid and you're like, I'm going to pretend I'm a horse and gallop and like my friends will pet me. And it's weird, but you're like seven. I wasn't a horse girl, obviously. But um, horses terrify me. But they would, th- they'd be like, oh, she's a witch. And she's like, I like horses and I'm seven, so I'm playing pretend. That's fucked up. They didn't think these young girls were witches. They thought they were possessed by the devil and it was done by witches. Okay, well, then you can't be a horse girl. They think you're possessed by the devil. <laughs> well, I mean, it is also just as bad, but, <laughs> well, it's not, actually. It- it's not, and you'll learn why. So Cotton Mather had recently published a popular book, Memorable Providences, which does not sound very memorable. And (laughs) in this book, it described the suspected witchcraft of an Irish washerwoman in Boston. And Betty's behavior in some ways very much mirrored that of this afflicted person described in Mather's book. And a lot of people read this book and a lot of people discussed it. So... Who is Cotton Mather? Because that name is a little bit familiar if you've read anything about the Salem Witch Trials. So he was the minister of Boston's Old North Church. He was a true believer in witchcraft. And in 1688, he had investigated the strange behavior of four children of a Boston mason named John Goodwin. The children had been complaining of these sudden pains that they had, and they were all crying, saying things together, doing similar things. And Mather concluded that witchcraft, specifically witchcraft that was practiced by an Irish washerwoman named Mary Glover, was responsible for the children's problems. So he sees these children acting, you know, like children. 
And he automatically decides, oh, it's this Irish washerwoman. She's a witch. And she's doing this. Or maybe they're in pain because they're eight years old and they just got done with the 10-hour shift at the stone mill. You know? Or growing pains because that is a real thing. Oh my god, yeah. God, I had like a Charlie horse every other damn day. Anyways. So all these girls are getting sick. Something's going on. They're seeming possessed. A local doctor, William Griggs, he diagnosed bewitchment or something supernatural as the cause, you know, as doctors do. Did he write a script for it? No. The widespread belief that witches were targeting children, it made the doctor's diagnosis seem like it was pretty likely. Okay. Well, she's acting a fool. Must be a witch in the house. She's obviously possessed, and she's like, <laughs> I have diphtheria. <laughs> no, you don't. You're a, you have possession. You're possessed. <laughs> so Thomas Putnam, who was the father of Anne Putnam, one of the girls that started showing all these weird bewitching signs, he begged his daughter to identify who might be responsible for her odd behavior. And she gave him three separate names. So on February 29th, Thomas Putnam and three of his friends rode from Salem Village to Salem Town to press formal charges of witchcraft against three women. The constable arrested Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba, who was a slave working in Reverend Paris's parsonage. Tituba seemed an obvious choice. She was likely named because of her practice in sharing with the girls tales of omens, voodoo, and witchcraft from her native folklore. She was from the Caribbean, so uh, apparently she was an obvious choice because she wasn't white. And again, seriously fucking racist. She wasn't. They were towards her. Sarah Good was a beggar and a social misfit who lived wherever someone would house her, so she bounced around. And Sarah Osborne was old, quarrelsome, and she hadn't attended church for over a year. So obviously, she is working with the devil. Oh my god, maybe she's busy on Sunday. Maybe she just doesn't want to go to church. Maybe she's like, but I could sleep in. Yeah, I'm gonna do that. God bless me with this eight-hour REM cycle, so pieces. That's my spirituality. These three women accused of being witches were brought before the magistrates, Jonathan Corwin and John Hathorne, and they were questioned. At the examinations, the girls, so these like six young girls, they described attacks by the specters of the three women. And I had to look that up because I had no idea what that meant. It's ghosts. Yeah. Okay, well, not everyone knows the word specters. You don't say your house is haunted by specters. No, that's fair. Maybe people do. I didn't know that. Learned a new word. It was actually just Regina Spector who came up to them and was like, hey, I'm going to be with you. So as the girls are talking about this, they fall into their by then very perfected pattern of contortions when in the presence of one of the suspects. So basically... The fact that all of these girls seem to have this same story that really lined up together and they would start contorting when in the presence of these three supposed witches, they're full of shit. These children are full of shit and they clearly worked out their stories together. I'm just going to call them out. Oh, yeah. I'm also, when you're saying contorting, I'm like, (laughs) 
I'm just picturing them like dancing. I don't know. Maybe they're twerking. <laughs> they're like, I'm a witch. I possessed. Yeah. No, think of and it like those people who can like move their joints in all the weird, crazy ways. Oh, so they're like like sitting on their own head and shit and you're like oh my god that's witchcraft but when i see that on like ripley's believe it or not or some shit witchcraft is also my first thought (laughs) and then you know oh right some people are flexible (laughs) yeah i just think of a flexibility So, Anne Putnam and Mercy Lewis, they were also reported seeing witches flying through the winter mist. So, all of these ideas of witches, like, flying, I mean, it's all here. So, with the Putnam family being a very prominent family, they supported the girls' accusations, and therefore those accusations were taken seriously. Other villagers came forward to offer stories of cheese and butter that was mysteriously bad or animals born with deformities after visits by one of these suspects. Cheese and butter that went bad? Y'all don't have refrigerators. (laughs) I I would assume the cheese and bread you eat is always bad. (laughs) Probably. Technically, cheese (laughs) is mold, so... I know. I'm like, okay. (laughs) The number of girls afflicted continued to grow rising to seven with the addition of Susanna Sheldon as an accuser so good and Osborne Osborne denied their guilt but Tichuba confessed Tichuba claimed that she was approached by a tall man from Boston who was obviously Satan and he sometimes <laughs> is it like well known that Satan's from Boston <laughs> and he's tall it's like uh yeah he lives in the wharf district Oh. <laughs> um, this man sometimes appeared as a dog or a hog and asked her to sign in his book to do his work. So again, like selling her soul over to him. So to <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Tichuba declared that she was a witch and she and four other witches, including Good and Osborne, had flown through the air on their poles. Her confession also served to silence most skeptics, and Paris and the other ministers began witch hunting with, like, zeal. They were all about it. They were like, okay, obviously no one's going to admit to something that's not true. Well, now we know that's a lie. Also, women don't fly. I mean, you could get a ticket on, like, Spirit or, (laughs) like, American Airlines and fly, but, you know, just through the air... No. Spirit air does feel a lot like a broomstick. Yeah. I mean, you could honestly buy a plane ticket cheaper than you could buy a new broom. So, which isn't that scary. But also, can we talk about why are brooms like $30? (laughs) We don't have to talk about that now. But I needed to buy a new broom recently and was like, are you... I I thought brooms were like $3. (laughs) They're not like $3, but mine was only like $10. Well, I spent like $30 on a broom and a dustpan, so. Oh my god! It, well, whatever. But um, anyways, not not the point. Um, what? It's not the point. Basically, what we can deduce from this, and what we know now, Tichuba was just trying to see if confessing and agreeing saved her from the gallows. Like, you know, she's like, I don't want to die. I don't want to be hung. Maybe I'd just admit to yeah. this and tell them what they want to hear. Well, and let's be real. Everything she's admitting to is things that they've already been trying to, like, they already, be, like, quote unquote, said they knew. So, 
I'm sure it's when, like, well, you were flying that night. The girls saw you in the mist. And she's like, okay. Yep, sure. Like, it l- was let's me. be real. Dorcas Good, who was the four-year-old daughter of Sarah Good, became the first child to be accused of witchcraft when three of the girls complained that they were bitten by the specter of Dorcas. This four-year-old girl was arrested, kept in jail for eight months, watched her mother get carried off to the gallows, and she would cry her heart out until she eventually went insane. She's four. She is four years old and they threw her in prison for being a witch. Fuck these girls that are like, you want to know who else is a witch? All these people that were mean to me in high school. Like, th- it sounds like they're literally at this point being like, oh my god, anyone we say is a witch, we get rid of them? Okay, well, this four-year-old is such an annoying little shit. Like, like literally, how do they have all of this power? Yes and no, because... Again, we have to remember there is the layer of people believed this stuff. People believed that the devil was possessing people. So, like, even these young girls who are obviously making shit up, I have got to believe there is some level that they do think, oh, yeah, I, you know, I did have that one thing, that one moment, like, say one of these girls, I'm totally going off on my own, I didn't read this, but say one of these girls had epilepsy, and she has a seizure, but they didn't know what that is, and so, yeah, she's possessed, and this girl's like, yeah, something's the matter, obviously the witches did it, so... While, yes, there is obviously part of this where this group of girls had to have at some point come together to have the same story, we can't put all of the blame on them because it's it's only going to get worse. Like, obviously, the trials in the court system in this time was just beyond fucked up. And, I mean, our current system is as well, but this is a whole new level of it. So wait till I get into details of some of the trials. Yeah, well, and I guess, honestly, if everyone, if they, like, truly believe this is a thing, and maybe they have a nightmare, and one of these other women is in it, they could be like, yep, that's that's all the evidence I need. She was in my nightmare, she witch-invaded my dreams or something. Or maybe they didn't really know that was a nightmare, maybe they thought it was life. I, it just, that's a good example. So, as the girls started accusing more and more women... They added new things to their performances, or new symptoms would pop up, like becoming struck dumb. And this made all of the townspeople believe them. They were like, oh my gosh, like this is so real. So the trial soon began to overwhelm the local justice system. So in May 1692, the newly appointed governor of Massachusetts, William Phipps, he ordered the establishment of court court of oyer which means to hear and terminer to decide on witchcraft cases so it was court of oyer and terminer so all of the evidence that would be excluded from any modern day courtroom such as hearsay gossip stories unsupported assertions surmises they were admitted as evidence Accused witches had no legal counsel, they could not have witnesses testify under oath on their behalf, and they had no formal avenues of appeal. So this is literally, there's a reason that like the term witch hunt is used, because these women weren't even given an opportunity not to be convicted. 
Like, no one could say anything on their behalf. They couldn't appeal anything. And any anything someone said, any, like, well, I heard Julie say that she saw Barbara doing this, and so Barbara's a witch. Just all these things that there's, there's no evidence. That's made up. Yeah. I hate when people today use the term witch hunt uh, me too it's it's the same as when people use the term like drink the kool-aid i'm like do you know what that means i know i'm like I'm like and we can look at something like this and it's easy to be we're so far removed from it it happened so long ago but when you hear what i'm talking about and instead of us just being like oh my gosh that's crazy it's ridiculous thinking about the fact that this was happening to real people and this is horrifying yeah Presided over by judges including Hawthorne. It may be Hawthorne. There's no W in it. So it's Hathorne, Hawthorne, Hathorne. I don't know. But including Hathorne, Samuel Seawall, and William Stogarden, the court handed down its first conviction against Bridget Bishop. So I mentioned her at the very beginning. Now I'm going to tell you why Bridget was the first conviction. She was about 60 years old. She was an owner of a tavern where patrons could drink cider, ale, and play shuffleboard, even on Sundays. And she was very critical of her neighbors. She was very reluctant to pay her bills. And this all made Bishop a very likely candidate for an accusation of witchcraft. She was a crabby old woman. Like, she just, like, damn, she owned a bar. Can you imagine all the shit she had to deal with all the time? She didn't feel like paying her bills and just like, whatever. And apparently- I don't like paying my bills. (laughs) Does that make me a witch? Is that all it takes? Am I a witch now? Because I'm like, ugh, rent is due. (laughs) Like, who's not pissed about paying their bills? Let's be real. Is anyone like, oh my god, it's almost the first, I get to pay rent? No. Does anyone get really excited about paying their electricity bill, especially in August in Texas? Like, oh my god, I love paying three times friends, as much. Texting their friends like, Bianca, oh my god, guess what? I just got an email and it's my water bill! <laughs> like, <laughs> so times were different back then. So I say she was crabby, but actually, I'm just thinking Bridget was normal. <laughs> yeah. So at Bridget's trial on June 2nd, 1692... A field hand testified that he saw Bishop's image stealing eggs and then saw her transform herself into a cat. Deliverance Hobbs and Mary Warren, both of these were women who had confessed to being witches, testified that Bishop was one of them. A villager named Samuel Gray told the court that Bishop visited his bed at night and tormented him. A jury of matrons assigned to examine Bishop's body reported that they found an excrescence of flesh (laughs) extra skin okay i think that's how you say that word excrescence like she got a lap band and has extra skin or like a scab what does this mean (laughs) it's just like extra skin so i mean damn they were probably just body shaming she just went on her fitness journey and oh wait she's old things sag when you're old like yeah these people are assholes Well, it's like they're literally just anything and everything is going to pass for evidence. I mean, several, several of the afflicted girls testified that Bishop's specter afflicted them. Numerous other villagers described why they thought Bishop was responsible for various bits of bad luck. 
that they that had befallen on them so literally like oh well i fell down and broke my arm and it was her she was probably just playing a trick on me are none of these people saying like you know if she was a witch she probably could get out of this so the thing was people who scoffed at the accusations they risked becoming targets of accusations themselves because again if you're like i don't think she's a witch like why are you protecting your coven sis exactly it's like why because you are too so no one was speaking out and and that just made things run even more rampant i mean there was even testimony that while being transported under guard past the salem meeting house bridget looked at the building and caused part of it to fall to the ground the jury returned a verdict of guilty So on June 10th, she was hanged on what would become known as Gallows Hill in Salem Town. And five more people were hanged that July, five in August, and eight more in September. In addition, seven other accused witches died in jail, while the elderly Giles Corey was pressed to death by stones. So like they were piled on top of him because he refused to enter a plea at his arraignment. So he was being accused of being a witch. He wouldn't admit it. And so they stoned him, piled stones on him, buried him to death, crushed him. Oh, my God. I remember that from the Crucible. By September 1692, everything starts to subside a little bit. And the public opinion turned against the trials. Like, they they stopped to care as much. As quickly as it started, it ended. Governor Phipps dissolved the court the court of Oyer and Terminer in October and mandated that its successor disregard spectral evidence. Trials continued with dwindling intensity until about the beginning of 1693. And by that May, Phipps had pardoned and released all of those that were in prison on witchcraft charges. So it was just like this pretty quick, like, oh, never mind. Wow. Right. Though the Massachusetts General Court later annulled guilty verdicts against accused witches and granted indemnities to their families, bitterness lingered in the community. Obviously. Yeah, they're like, well, oops, sorry we murdered your mother. So a lot of research and novels and things have been written and looked up and just there's a ton of information out there about the Salem Witch Trials, how they started, why they started, what really was rooted in the beliefs of this community, why it happened in Salem and not somewhere else. So there's a lot of information you can find. And in 1976, and I said that correctly, 1976, mm-hmm. in an effort to explain by scientific means these strange afflictions that all of these quote-unquote, bewitched Salem residents had in 1692, there was a study published in a science magazine by Linda Carporel that cited fungus ergo, I think it's ergo, not ergot. I don't know. It's E-R-G-O-T, so probably ergo. So this is a fungus that's found in rye, wheat, and other cereals, which toxicologists say can cause symptoms such as delusions, vomiting, and muscle spasms. There's actually a disease called convulse ergotism, and it was brought on by ingesting rye, eaten as cereal, and this was a really, also a really common ingredient in bread that happened to be infected by this ergo. 
So ergo is caused by this fungus that invades the developing kernels of rye grain, especially when it's warm and damp, such as the exact conditions that existed at the time of the previous rye harvest in Salem. I know, it's like, oh, so you mean a Massachusetts summer? Exactly. So convulse ergotism, um, it involves very violent fits, a crawling sensation on the skin, vomiting, choking, and most interestingly enough, hallucinations. LSD is actually a, it's derived from ergo. Okay, that's that's what I was thinking, because I'd heard the, the rye grain fungus theory, and as you're describing it, I'm like, So they were dropping acid in this town. And if everyone is taking acid, yes, someone's going to think someone's a witch. Absolutely. Many of the symptoms of convulsive ergotism seem to match those attributed to Betty Paris. So that was Elizabeth, one of the, you know, the very first girl that started displaying these strange behaviors. But it's been so long, there really is no way of knowing with any real level of certainty that she, in fact, suffered from this disease, from convulsive ergotism. Yeah, because I guess they would they would have to have someone they could exhume who died, like, during these fits, during this sickness, to really be able to test, like, okay, did you have this? Like, look for the mold and fungus in their body or something i don't know that's speculation well and this theory also it wouldn't explain the affliction suffered by others in salem later in the year so when there's like new rye or it's just yeah they harvested it it could be around for a while but eventually this theory doesn't pan out yeah but i could also totally see that this being correct for the first ones and then other people being like caught up in the the group think of it all totally and being like oh, me, me too i had the fits lordy me too so that's a really abbreviated version of the salem witch trials they were horrifying shit a lot of people died and like i said there were like 18 total people hung it wasn't just women though it was more often women than men but there were men women children Can we also talk about how, first off, I feel like because this is something that is very much steeped in, like, our more pop culture mindset, it's seen as, like, not a big deal, I think, by a lot of people. It's like, oh, it's a thing. Like, it's kind of kooky. And it's like, no, this is the murder of almost 20 people. Yeah. And also, it's, I feel like, very falsely remembered a lot as, like, oh, well, like, the witch burnings. And it's like, no, it... It wasn't it wasn't this dramatic cinematic kind of thing. Although I mean like witch burnings and stuff did happen um mm-hmm. a lot in like England, but I I feel like it's this is something that everyone knows and very few people know about, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like I said, I didn't know a lot of the actual facts of what happened in the Salem Witch Trials in Massachusetts. I do know I really want to go to Salem. There is a museum. I'd like to check it out because there's tons of information out there. There's tons of information that Mm -hmm. I didn't just share. There have been, like I said, there have been studies happening for ever since this did happen. And there were even studies at that time of why they believed witches were real. 
And the yeah. belief in witches has been around since, what did I say, like the 14th century, the, the 13th century. It was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. It was in Europe. There were the witch burnings. There's there's so much more background into what brought this idea to Salem and, and why they truly believed that the devil was possessing people there and that he was turning these people into witches to do his deeds. So. Yeah. Well. And I think one of the, I mean, like I mentioned at the beginning, my knowledge of it comes from The Crucible, which Arthur Miller wrote in the 50s, because the happenings and the overall setting and what happened in the Salem Witch Trials was a perfect foil at the time for McCarthyism and the Red Scare going on in America. Because if y'all have not looked up, like, what the fuck was going on with McCarthyism and the Red Scare in the 50s? Like, Arthur Miller was accused of being a communist. Everyone's being accused of being communist yeah. because it was the Cold War. And then he married Marilyn Monroe. Like, I, I think they liked each other, but a big part of it was also she was a well-known American figure, and that would basically like, take the heat off of him. And she was like, bitch, I got you. You're my dude. Like, we'll get married. People are going to be like, oh, he's not a communist. He's married to Marilyn Monroe. Which, okay. But that level of like, well, you know, I saw the Jorgensons. They were eating borscht. They're communists. They're communists. And just like blaming your neighbors, like mm-hmm. people, like all that n- entire group think and us against them and everything is very similar to what happened in the Salem Witch Trials. It is. So I've actually never read The Crucible, and it came up multiple times in my research, and I'm like, I should read that. I didn't know you had. Yeah, I had to read it um, 10 years ago for high school. Well, you remember a lot more than I do from some of the books I read in high school. It was, um, I was an English nerd, and me and my group of friends, the majority of us were in ap english and it was our summer reading thing so we did things like we had a crucible party where we like read the books together and then watched the movie we were those kids hey but you remember it to this day yeah and you understand also i think that year i mean honestly that is was my biggest takeaway and also that was kind of how we looked at it because that was that was how my teacher always did our classes is we'd like read a classic book and be like Okay, now let's talk about what this really means that is not the story you just read. Which is something that I miss. Tiny little tangent for like just two minutes. I miss stuff like that because I loved learning about archetypes and symbolism and metaphors. You're in a book club now. No, I know. But we're not sitting there reading Animal Farm thinking... (laughs) That's the book that... Is, is in my head, too, as, like, the symbolism and representation foils for society at the time. Yeah. What did Animal Farm represent again? It was, like, the Cold War? It was the Russian, no, the Russian Revolution, I believe. Or it might have just been an overall blanket for Soviet-era communism. They sent the horse to the glue factory because he was the hardest worker. The pigs lived in the house. How many people I've talked to that were like, I hated Animal Farm. It was just like weird. Like, why are we reading about animals? Like, and I'm like, oh, you didn't, you didn't get any of it. But then (laughs) I'm like, 
honestly, if you're not in a class or a setting where you're able to have like critical discussion about it, and it's something that's just presented as like, read this book, cool. Yeah, I can see how you can not take things away. It's true. What was the other one? Watership Down? Oh, the rabbits. rabbits. I never read that one. Yeah. And so that is something that I totally miss because no, yeah, you're right. I'm in a book club. No, we're not reading literary fiction. We're not reading books that are actual, like, complete symbology of a real event and, and put in this different situation with animals. That's not what we do. We read books that I'm like, ooh, this is a thriller. I read it in an afternoon. We read good books. Don't get me wrong. But we're not like a literary fiction book club. It's not that kind of book club. We're we're a book club that if you don't finish the book, that's okay. You can still come next time. And, you know, we talk about the book for like 10 minutes and then talk about life and wine. And it's just a group. And I love my book club. I recommend book clubs for everyone. I recommend books for everyone. But I do. I miss these things because for me, a lot of the times, I need it to be pointed out to me. Then I can see it. Then I can understand it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the times I am that person that's like, why did I read this book about rabbits? That was so weird. I wasn't even good. I didn't really like it. Well, it's because I didn't understand what I was reading. I didn't get it. Yeah. But... All right. Well, so that was, thank you for the little English delay. I mean, hey, I'm gay. So obviously, my English teachers growing up were like my person. It's a shared experience. If you're gay in high school, your English teacher is the person who gets you. It's like first day of class. She's like, I see you. I see you're closeted. I'm taking you under my wing. English and history. Mm. I don't think any of my teachers listen to this. But if y'all do, hey, what's up? (laughs) So, that is the Salem Witch Trials. Tyler, what witch and witchcraft murder did you pick? So, I'm going to be honest, this topic and cases that fit it, not as easy to find as I thought it would be. Because I definitely went into this with a very clear image of, like, what I wanted. And it's very much a, like, pop culture built of, like, oh, like, sacrificial, like, witchcraft murder people. And no, I did find one of the cases I saw that kept popping up, and I think because it's a more recent one, is the Blue Moon murders. What? uh, Or the, like, Pensacola witchcraft murders. It's a triple homicide that happened in Pensacola, and the police, it happened on a blue moon, which is when there's two full moons in a month. Didn't know that's what a blue moon actually was. I was like, oh, that's boring. I thought it looked bluer. No, has nothing to do with blue. And I guess in the Wiccan religion, uh, Blue Moon is, like, special and representative. And the murders happened that night, so the police and sheriff were all like, it was witches. It was witchcraft. When did this happen? But, like, that was it. Like, in the 2000s. Oh, my God. And they literally sounded like the men that I was talking about in my case? Yeah. And I didn't want to do that case because from everything I was reading, it just sounded like it was the authorities like putting this like it's witches. I I hate that. So I was like, no, I want to find something that's not that. And then I stumbled upon this case and was like, oh, okay, this is not what I expected. But oh, my God. And this is the case of the San Francisco witch killers. That sounds really eerie. It is. Also, East Coast to West Coast, 
We did that. The sources I used for this, an article in the San Francisco Gate by Katie Dowd, an article from the 13th Floor by Elise Wax, and the Murderpedia page for James Clifford Carson. So, in the 1970s, James Carson, he is this just all-American family guy. Um, He has a master's degree. He's living in Phoenix, Arizona with his wife and daughter. And he's just, he's this great dad. And I say great dad from the outside, obviously. Because by the time his daughter was five, her mom noticed this significant change in James's behavior. So maybe he was like, totally a great dad prior, and then something happened and he wasn't. But mom became scared. And so one night, she took Jen, who's their five-year-old daughter, and they left. They left the house in the middle of the night because they were terrified of him. And pretty much every six months, they would move. They cut all ties with, like, mutual acquaintances and friends and basically disappeared because they needed to avoid being tracked down by him. I'm just really not seeing where the story's going. It, yeah, it it does not go where you think it will. Well, because you know a lot of the times when we have a topic and we start our case, you can get a general idea of where things are going. I have no idea. Yeah. Well, James, as much effort as they put in to hide from him, he didn't really seem interested in tracking down his family and finding them. Which is crazy. He's this guy who's this like very devoted husband and father. They leave... And he's like, bye. Doesn't even try to find them. No. Instead, he met a woman named Susan Barnes. She'd been recently divorced. She had two teenage sons. And the two of them connected. They got married, and then they traveled Europe for a year or two. But when they returned to the U.S., they moved to the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. And remember, this is the 70s. And... I don't know if it's Haight-Ashbury or Eight-Ashbury, San Francisco, West Coast people, let me know. But this area in San Francisco, this was the birthplace of hippie culture. The drugs, the art, mysticism, the counterculture, everything going on. Like, this was where that was born for the whole hippie and counterculture movement in the 70s. And the Carsons were both very heavily involved in all of that. I imagine they had beads to go from room to room instead of doors. They have the hanging beads. And lots of That's what I'm picturing. Like flower dresses. Lots of flower dresses. A lot of like appropriated Native American and Hispanic like prints and textiles. That's that's what I'm picturing. So a couple of things. Also, they're I mean they're they're fucking weird at this point. Like the the thing that changed about him that made his wife and daughter have to escape. Like, it's it's growing. I'm getting Manson vibes, which that had just happened in 69. So... Yeah. I'm just feeling... That's not... I'm feeling like that. Yeah, that's not far off. So, some of the things they did, James changed his name to Michael. They adopted the surname, the surname like, last name Bear. And Susan believed that she was this yogi and a mystic with knowledge of the past, present, and future events. Uh, The two of them claimed to be 
vegetarian Muslim warriors, and they believed that witchcraft, homosexuality, and abortion were reason enough to kill people. Seems like an odd smattering of really stupid, fucked up reasons. Yeah. They also believed that their higher power had called on them to kill their enemies um, for their own protection and for the sake of the country's future. And so it was there in San Francisco that their three-year murder spree began. Three years? Oh, no. Three years. So their very first, like, confirmed murder, because, spoiler alert, it likely wasn't their actual first murder. It was just the first confirmed one. The fucking 70s in California. Terrifying time. Well, this happened in 1981. Oh. Oh. Well, Yeah, all of- All of- I mean, basically the same, but all of this, like, radicalizing and just, I mean, full-on white people adopting and tokenizing these cultures and beliefs of other people and being like, that's different. It's magic. It's like, okay, go fuck yourself. And then also being horrifying monsters, being like, we're just going to murder people who don't believe in us. Like, no. Or don't believe like us. Yeah, like us. I. <sighs> yeah. So the first confirmed murder was in March of 1981, and their victim was their roommate, Karen Barnes. She was an aspiring actress who lived with them in San Francisco. And Michael and Susan at this time were on a hitchhiking trip. Like, Karen's at home doing her own roommate things. Michael and Susan, they're out hitchhiking doing their things. And during a rainstorm, Susan believed that she got orders to kill Karen. And every time she said it, like, she was like, I'm gonna murder her, the thunder would clap. And I'm like, you're in a thunderstorm. There's lots of thunder. You could be like, I am gonna eat frozen yogurt. (gasps) That doesn't mean it's a sign of anything. No, it means it's raining outside. But the couple returned home. And when they got there, They just murdered Karen. She was stabbed 13 times, and then her skull was crushed in with a frying pan. Oh my god. After you stabbed someone 13 times, why were they- they were- Sorry, I can't even put words together. They were so extremely violent. Yeah. They then wrapped her in blankets and just left her body there at the house. At their house? Yeah. Susan believed that Karen had faked her conversion to their brand, their religion, and was actually a witch and was stealing her yogic powers. Okay, she has lost it. But before Karen's body was found, Michael and Susan fled. They left the area and were nowhere to be found. They next showed up at a marijuana farm in Northern California, and there they worked as farmhands and also guards, which I guess in like the 70s, 80s, the like working on these like secret illegal weed farms was a thing. This is this isn't the first time I've heard this in the most recent weeks. There's a BuzzFeed video. It's actually so interesting. Quick side note. Um, one of the guys that works for BuzzFeed, he wanted to find out about his dad's best friend, 
who disappeared in the 80s okay. and find out like what happened, where he was. And it dives so much deeper and has so many more turns and twists than anyone would ever expect. But mild, not very mild, spoiler alert, part of it, the the friend worked at like an illegal pot farm. And I'm like, is that just a thing that people did in Northern California? But apparently so. I guess. I've never heard of that. Yeah. But anyway, so the bears, they're working the pot farm. And co-workers there said that they were these anarchists. They were advocating for a revolution and full-on believed that the nuclear apocalypse was imminent. Which, it's the early 80s. It's the middle of the Cold War. You know, I I can see ish more where you're coming from. With with the nuclear apocalypse thing, not anything else. Okay. I didn't really know where you were going with that. Yeah, I, I saw your face and you were like, uh, no. But like with the, we could get bombed at any moment. I mean, this is, if you've ever seen the movie The Day After, really good movie in the 80s. Really intense. Highly recommend. Um, but that was in like 1983. And it, this is also the time I think like Red Dawn came around this time. There's a lot of like nuclear tensions between the u.s and the soviet union right you are talking a lot in this episode about podcasts and movies and things that you enjoy that you've been saying you don't do anymore but there's very much a theme to all of the things and a good one that what it's like history and facts based things yes which i yeah not a surprise (laughs) literally tyler none of us are surprised (laughs) i know (laughs) um but yeah so anyway the day after gives a good um it's a good way to kind of understand the mindset of the time also fun fact about it it was like an abc tv movie that played and it was like it had like help numbers like if if you are like experiencing like severe anxiety and stuff and you need to talk to someone like played after it because it was one of the first movies shown and shown to everyone that truly depicted like the atomic bombs being dropped on u.s cities and the survivors going through it and it was done in a very like character driven real people what do you do kind of way and i mean it was something unheard of i think it was the first like wide-scale depiction of atomic bombs being dropped and like the mushroom clouds and the intensity and detail it again it's an intense movie not as much by today's movie standards at all but highly highly recommend it was i think culturally like probably one of the most important events in the 80s because it also drove a lot of people to kind of change their mind on the cold war and be like no we need to be on the side of de-escalation right if you have friends family that were like alive and of an age where they remember things in the 80s ask them about the day after they probably have memories about it but anyway that's not this this is murder that was a movie this is real life that was a depiction of real life yeah so anyways they're working on the pot farm they're like we're anarchists we're gonna have a revolution the nuclear end is coming and they also had this ongoing fight with a fellow farmhand clark stevens And this fight and argument they had, it culminated with Michael shooting him twice in the head in May of 1982. Oh. And 
Michael would later go on to say that Stevens was a demon who'd been sexually abusing his wife. But the bears, after shooting him and murdering him, they attempted to burn his body in the woods before, once again, they up and just disappeared. And left his attemptedly burned body in the woods. Yeah. Two weeks later, he was reported missing, and the investigators found his partially burned body there in the woods. And at this point, I mean, the bears, they're prime suspects. Everyone who works on the farm is like, oh no, they had this huge, like, fight and argument and, like, ongoing thing going on. He winds up disappearing. They go missing. He's dead. We know who it is. Clearly some very obvious first suspects. Yeah. And they, like, disappeared so quickly, they left a lot of shit behind kind of thing. And among the belongings they left behind was this anti-government manifesto they wrote, and it included a list of celebrities and politicians that they planned to assassinate. These included people like Johnny Carson and then-President Ronald Reagan. Okay, these two are such a level of fucked up. When people write goddamn manifestos, I'm like, no. Oh, yeah. So, now there's a huge manhunt out to find them. But, because they're these paranoid, like, anti-government types, they very much were easily staying off the grid, and they were very hard to track down. It's not like they're getting a job at Nordstrom's and, you know, putting their social security number in or, like, using all their credit cards. They're fully versed in how to basically be invisible people. They've practiced. But a break finally came in November of 1982 when an acquaintance recognized Michael hitchhiking. Like, Michael's hitchhiking on the side of the road. Acquaintance, I guess, drives by and is like... (gasps) That's Michael. That bitch. So he calls the police, and Michael was arrested. But... Where's Susan? There was a police error. Yeah. And Michael was freed before anyone had a chance to question him. Do you know what the police error was? What does that mean? Police error. I'm assuming, like, the cop that came to pick him up, like, wasn't informed of, like, who this guy was, and was maybe like, oh, it's just this guy hitchhiking, like... Hello, sir. How you doing? It's like, I'm just hitchhiking. Okay, you have a good day then. I mean, I don't know. He was arrested, but he was freed before any kind of interview. So maybe, like, they had him in the jail, and there was a paperwork mix-up. And someone was like, oh no, he's free to go. Where is his wife? She's probably also hitchhiking, because as soon as he gets out of jail, they're back together being their duo. Why were they separate? I thought, like, he killed her. I don't know. I totally thought he killed her. No. Again, this case does not go anywhere where you expect it to. I still don't know where it's going, except for the the fact that they're going around just murdering people that don't fit to their ideas of how life should be lived. Yep, people they think are witches. Yeah. So, now we get to March of 1983, and this guy, John Charles Hellyer... He's driving, and he sees this couple hitchhiking on the road around Bakersfield, California. They're on Highway 101, which is a very busy highway. And so he's like, oh, sure, I can pick y'all up, give you a ride north. And I guess they're going towards 
San Francisco or Sacramento or something. Um, because at some point during the drive, the drive there altogether is more than like 300 miles. So they're in the car together like six hours hitchhiking. That's so long. That's a long time to take someone. Yeah. But the three of them are in the car together. And at some point during the ride, Susan decided that Hellyer was a witch and he needed to die. Do you know how they're determining people being witches or like, where was that? Because I feel like the witches is such a weird thing. I think it's just they're they're getting vibes. I don't know. They're like, there's like, I think he's trying to steal our power. That's a witch. Yeah. That's so crazy. And it's, you're right. It's the power stealing. Like how the roommate was stealing her yogi abilities. And it's like. No, maybe you haven't been practicing as as much, and you're losing your abilities. I don't know. Yeah. She sounds like someone who probably practice, practices a lot. But I just, the whole, like, witches is just a weird, again, but these people are just really weird. Yeah. But they're in the car, they've been driving for a while, and then while driving, an argument and a physical fight break out where they're both attacking Hellier. And so he, like, stops the car, pulls over on the side of the highway. The three of them get out, and the fight continues. Like, the two of them are trying to murder him on the side of a busy freeway. Like, they're literally in the breakdown lane on the shoulder, having this fight. Susan then pulls out a knife and starts stabbing him until Michael grabs a gun and shoots Hellier. All the while people are driving by. Oh, yeah. Again, the side of the 101 in full sight of, like, heavy California traffic. And so a passerby calls the police. I don't know. It's the 80s. Were car phones a thing yet? Probably in Southern California. But passerby called the police. So police get there because, again, there's probably dozens or hundreds of people driving by witnessing this. Totally. But the police get there. There's like a brief high-speed chase. But then Michael and Susan were caught and arrested. Good. I'm tired of them escaping and running away. Initially, the two of them, they pled guilty to the three murders in exchange for a televised press conference. They were like, we'll plead guilty if you let us tell the world everything. So I guess that happened because they had the press conference and at it, they admitted to the murders, but they described their victims that, as they were witches and they needed to die. And they also went on and on about their strange combination of this hippie spirituality and their own personal brand of like Muslim beliefs and claimed that the murders were done according to the teachings of the Quran. I don't think so. And I'll... Yeah, I don't think so at fucking all. I think they are crazy people that think they're witch hunters. Yep. So, obviously, this is a huge media circus. And the press nicknames them the San Francisco Witch Killers. Which is exactly what they were. So they confessed and everything, but just before the trial, they full-on recanted their confessions, and they pled not guilty. But eventually... Both Michael and Susan were convicted on all three murder charges, and they each received sentences that totaled 75 years to life in prison. But the San Francisco witch killers, 
they were suspects in at least a dozen other murders in both the U.S. and Europe. Because if you'll remember, (gasps) before they murdered Karen, they had traveled Europe for like a year or two together. Well, and you're right. Because they've been together for a while, and I don't feel like they all of a sudden started this. Like, Mm -mm. when there are serial killers or like them, like serial killer couples, a lot of the times the first one is not actually the first. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, in the cases they were suspected in the US and Europe, aside from these three, there wasn't really enough evidence to bring them to trial on them. Right. And you know, if there's not enough evidence to bring it to trial, then you don't. And I think that's one of the things we don't talk about a lot, but if there really isn't enough evidence, it doesn't go to trial. Like, it just doesn't. Yeah. If you're not sure that you can get a conviction, you don't risk it. Yeah. For the most part. I mean, there are some where you're not, I guess you're never really sure. Because a lot of the ones that we feel like, oh, that was a surefire, we were going to get them, they didn't, you know, like OJ. So, mm-hmm. you can't say there's always like a guaranteed, you know, it's going to happen, but... There is a system of when it's time to go to trial. And if there's not enough information, you're not going to go. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, what information is presented. Right. Not necessarily the information that's there. True. So the two of them, they were found guilty on the three murder charges. They got 75 years to life. Now we flash forward to 2015. Both of them came up for parole, but Michael actually canceled his parole hearing because he was. It, it's been 30 years since his conviction, but his beliefs had not changed, and he refused to show any kind of remorse for the murders. And Susan, the same. She did not show any remorse for what she did. She refused to help her attorney prepare her case, and so she was denied parole, and his was canceled. So... She'll next be eligible for parole in 2030. In May of this year, 2020, Michael was again denied parole. And so it'll be another 10 years, so 2030 as well, before either of them are eligible for parole. You know, I will say that is a pretty, like, stout belief level. If you can be in prison for 30 years and still be like, no, I show no remorse for the people I murdered. I mean, it... To me, I'm more leaning towards, because it sounds like they very much fit the definition of they know what they did, but do not understand that it was wrong. Right. I'm surprised that they didn't, you know, there wasn't a not guilty by reason of insanity and the two of them being at like a mental hospital, because that to me sounds proper but also i mean if they're convicted in the 80s maybe that just wasn't a thing and so they're you know if they need mental help and stuff that well too fucking bad you're in prison which happens to way too many people now then all the time i know so jen carson who's michael's daughter who was you know, five years old when she and her mother escaped him. She was interviewed in 2006, and she said that she's relieved that her dad is not going to be released. 
She believes that both Michael and Susan are very much still dangerous. Yeah. And when she was 19 years old, which was about a decade, about 10 years after her dad had been arrested, she went to visit him in prison. And this was like the first time she'd seen him since she and her mother escaped when she was like four or five. And she said it was like looking into the eyes of someone with no soul. And she considered him to just be pure evil. It sounds like they were. Yeah. But that is the case of the San Francisco witch killers. I have never heard of that. Same. Which is why when I was doing my research, and this this one, again, like took me quite a bit longer than usual to find. Um, but when I did, I was like, oh my god, how have I never heard of this? Especially because I feel like we so often do cases from the 70s and 80s on the west coast because again i feel like literally Mm -hmm. like serial killer central but no i've never heard of this and no it is a modern take on witches and i don't there is the whole like satanic panic from the 90s which you can say weaves in witchcraft and whatnot yeah but i feel like they're not as common or maybe they are and i'm being naive or just don't know about them Well, and I specifically wanted to find a case not where the authorities or the public was saying, like, it's witchcraft. I wanted to find one where the killers themselves were, like, involved in witchcraft. Because I think far too often, especially with the satanic panic, there are cases that very much do not involve witches and witchcraft and, like, all that. But because of the mindset at the time... That that's the narrative that was pushed. Right. Well, and in your case, it was these two people who truly believed they were killing witches. Yeah. Oh, my God. Which, I mean, I don't know if it's obvious to y'all yet, but I don't, witches don't exist. That's not a thing. No. Bette Midler's an actress. She, She don't, she don't fly on a broom. Like, you can believe in, like, spirituality and energy and those types of things and it's not a witch well i i say that i do not at all want to discount the like wiccan religion no 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 and those who like identify as witches themselves and stuff because that that's a very different it's extremely different we're talking about witches in the way that witches have been thought of in like historical terms and even modern terms and just like witches with the potions and the the doing the devil's deeds and those things yeah yeah like the hocus pocus witches the harry potter witches no that is not at all real the wiccan witches which from my understanding at least is more of like shamanistic and spiritual like absolutely but yeah this whole thing of like witches possessing people and being these just like evil beings of the devil and so i'm like y'all i don't know maybe i just don't have any joy in my life because i'm like you know magic's not real right and there are people listening right now they're like oh tyler you just haven't experienced it yet and i'm one of those that is aligned with you that i'm like Magic isn't real. Well, because to me, and I mean, honestly, maybe at this point, the definition blurs. Yeah. To me, 
magic or unexplainable things is at the end of the day, it's always just a scientific process of reasoning that we haven't understood yet. And I mean, shit, maybe that is just a definition of magic. You know, in in Salem, when they're looking at, I don't know, why earthquakes happen or how hurricanes form, it was science that wasn't understood and realized at the time. And so to them, it's magic. And maybe that's just what, like, maybe that doesn't necessarily mean they're not the same thing. I don't know. Well, and the thing is, magic can be defined by a lot of different things. What's magic to one person may not be magic to another, and... A New Year's kiss with champagne under the fireworks. (laughs) That's magic. magic. No, that's horniness. (laughs) That is called, (laughs) it is the last day of the year, and I don't even care. All right, well, this closes out our first episode of October 2020, which is probably bound to be the spookiest October in our entire lives for a lot of reasons we're not going to go into. But... If you enjoyed this episode, if you're looking forward to our other spooky episodes that we have coming up this month, I was about to say this season, it's kind of the season, it's the Halloween season. It's the season of spooky. You guys, I'm getting Charlie a costume, and I can't wait. I'm so excited. It is the cutest freaking creepy costume I've ever seen. So get ready for pictures. See, Halloween is usually one of my favorite holidays. I mean, I'm gay, so it's... Obviously, Christmas. It's one of my favorite holidays. Uh, no, Oscars is Christmas for gays. Wait, what? I thought you said but Halloween was gay Christmas. I think I got corrected, and that Oscar season is actually gay Christmas, but also so is the Met Gala. I don't know. Halloween's gay Easter? Is that a thing? Gay Fourth of July? Maybe. Anywho, I'm not really doing anything this year. I mean, Obviously, I'm not going to go to any parties with a bunch of people and no social distancing. Like, I'm not into that at all. And so I'm like, I don't really want to get a costume and spend money to sit at home. And I live in an apartment complex, so I'm not going to have kids coming up to my door. I'm like, that's fine. I might totally buy some candy. I might totally buy some candy on November 1st when it's 50% off. I didn't say I was participating in Halloween or dressing up. Well, I'm also not getting the kids' costumes. I mean, Max has his shark costume that I have kept for years. He loves it. It's his favorite. I also love it. And so if there's ever a need to put a costume on, it's right there. So I'm getting this one for Charlie, and we're going to go on a walk. You know, just anytime we go on a walk that day, anytime we're outside, he's going to wear his costume, and he's going to love it. And I'll probably accidentally pee on it, but that's okay. It's going to be super cute. But if you are looking forward to the rest of what this month holds from our podcast, and we'll talk about what it holds for the world, and, you know, we'll be here right there with you guys every step of the way. But if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think. Leave us that five-star review. We appreciate you guys so much. Also, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.